Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, November 8th, 2012. Busy radio schedule this week. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Unfortunately, with invisible Christianity and churches that call themselves Christian, there are a lot of pastors who are saying things that they ought not to say, say teaching doctrines that the Bible doesn't teach, uh, teaching people that God wants them to do things that God has not told them that he wants them to do. As a result of it, there is a lot of confusion out there within the visible church, and this confusion has ramifications. It has ramifications in the sense that wickedness continues to increase, well, because people are not confronted with their sins and brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, but continue to produce the fruits of iniquity rather than the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you can't legislate for the fruits of the Holy Spirit, nor can you produce them unless you are regenerate, just flat out, plain and simple. And so while things continue to grow dark in the culture around us, I think the primary reason for that is because the church is off topic. The church is not teaching what it ought to teach. It is not calling sinners to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Instead, it's telling them to stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm smart, I'm talented, I'm beautiful, and I'm strong, and I'm rich, and I'm healthy, rather than say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, have mercy on me. Big difference. And so, um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of you out there who very much invested in uh, the outcome of the presidential election in the United States of America. And a lot of you out there are very disappointed with uh, what has happened uh, with the uh, presidential election. I'm, and here's the deal. Let's put the blame where the blame needs to be placed. And that's the church. Um, the culture around us is going crazy. And um, it's getting darker and more evil and this is a direct result. I think it is a one-to-one -one correlation. This is a direct result of the fact that the church has been, for decades now, 
put up with with literally heretical nonsense, has not cleaned house, and that heretical nonsense has become the mainstream feature within much of evangelicalism, and uh, and that false theology is not capable of producing. Sorry to say this, but not producing good citizens, but instead very narcissistic, me-centered people who will um, put into office um, people who, well, seem to be a lot like them. Just something to consider. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Obviously, the election is big news, but I don't really want to spend a lot of time on it. I don't do a lot of politics. Um, it's, It's... not really within the target of what this program does, unless, of course, a candidate steers into messianic or religious-type statements, at which point it's fair game. But it's not to address it politically, but to address it in light of what Scripture says. You know, back four years ago when President Barack Obama was running for president the first time, if you go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, you know, there were questions that I was asking, you know, is is is... Barack Obama, the Messiah, because of the way the news coverage had handled it. And, uh, you know, I I covered that type of stuff there. But we don't do a lot of politics on this program because, quite frankly, we've got far more important things to be looking at. And uh, the job here is to teach you to learn how to listen with discernment, to help you know what God's Word says, and demonstrate by example what it means to stop somebody, slow down, and think critically, not critically in the sense of, oh, you're just being a skeptic, but critically in the sense of asking the question, is what this person is saying, is this really what God has revealed in his word? Is this really what God's word says and what it is that we're to be doing? Or are these doctrines that this pastor is putting forward, are they the doctrines of men, the doctrines of demon, uh, something that's coming from somebody who isn't exactly of sound mind, things like that. And so the idea is is that we demonstrate by example how to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's not politically correct. It could be a little bit crazy at times. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. In fact, uh, today, uh, during the break, we're going to be featuring a, another brand new Max Holiday's Church Day Soleil sketch, and we're going to be introducing a new character uh, and we hope to have this character as a recurring character uh, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith during our Max Holiday sketches. And her name is Mildred. Mildred. And so I'm not going to tell you anything more about it, but the uh, the, the the name of this uh, uh, Max Holiday sketch is entitled Sessions with Mildred. Sessions with Mildred. And there, in the weeks ahead, we, we hope to have several different sessions with Mildred. And uh, you'll you'll get the gist of what's going on pretty quickly. Um, in this particular sketch, I think uh, we're trying to help her to be more audacious. So, you know, you don't want to miss it. It's actually, <laughs> these sketches are pretty funny. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Number one, uh, we're... This is, not, this is not a guy, his name is Jonas Clark. I don't know if you've heard of Jonas Clark, but uh, he does a lot of teaching apparently regarding a Jezebel spirit that's out and about, lurking in dark shadows, ready to, well, target you and snatch you and seduce you and things like that. You're going, a what? A Jezebel spirit? Yeah. Now, Jonas Clark doesn't hang out in the Patricia King gang, 
but he's kind of in that same ballpark. So we're going to be using our Patricia King gang update music for Jonas Clark. And as we as we try to answer the question, is the spirit of Jezebel targeting you? Is the spirit of Jezebel targeting you? And what will be interesting is, is that this will allow us to kind of steer into a very nice little uh, feature uh, found in the book of Revelation regarding Jezebel, but more importantly... More importantly, regarding the mercy and long-suffering of Christ. You'll see what I mean when we get there. After that, we're going to take a break, and then, uh, as promised uh, earlier in the week, we're going to take a listen to Osteen's second life class appearance on Oprah's life class, and and we're going to listen to Osteen and Oprah about the importance of dreaming big. Dreaming big. This is another one of those false gospels. This is a replacement gospel. It's an instead-of gospel. Um, that you're going to be hearing from Oprah and Osteen today. And then for hour number two, we're going to be listening to a sermon that is not a good one, but it's not an ugly one either. It's actually kind of one that falls into the category of takes a little bit more discernment to listen to this type of sermon because it's not just so egregiously wrong, but at the same time, you'll see that things are backwards, upside down, and inside out. In fact, the uh, the, the man preaching this sermon poses an important question like like a question of like ultimate significance and importance at the beginning of his sermon and then preaches an answer that is well frightening frightening to say the least but the thing is is it's not one of these sermons where you know he's repelling into his congregation in a spider-man outfit or you know or teaching you how to hug a vampire or any silly things like that in fact the name of the sermon is a razor's edge and like i said it poses a good question but gives a frightening answer and the reason why the answer is so frightening is because the emphasis is on the wrong syllable Okay, this is you'll those of you who listen to Fighting for the Faith know exactly what that means. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable. It's like reading the Bible completely the wrong way, and as a result of it, there's no assurance, no hope given. No, <laughs> you'll see what I mean when we get to hour number two. So, uh, with that, I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather in your neck of the woods is uh, cool enough to allow you to have you know large. Um, furry rabbits on your feet without them sweating. Yeah, if you're, if they sweat, it does actually detract from uh, your listener experience. And if you don't have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, you can get a pair at fightingforthefaith.com. Right along the left-hand side, you'll see uh, uh, pictures that you can click on where you can go and purchase your own fuzzy bunny slippers. If you have not listened to Fighting for the Faith with fuzzy bunny slippers on, you trust me, you don't know what you're missing. So with that, we're going dri- uh, di- drive dive into the program proper. Uh, here we go. So, um, got a question for you. I mean, when you're out there walking down the street, maybe walking the dog, and maybe it's getting dark and the shadows are getting long, do you ever worry about being targeted by a spirit of Jezebel? Well, she may be after you. (laughs) That's all I can say. She may be after you. And uh, here is... Jonas Clark from his Kingdom Living television program explaining to us the dangers of, well, the spirit of Jezebel. Yeah, here we go. Could the spirit of Jezebel be targeting you? I don't know. Could it? Jezebel targets certain people. She does? Jezebel is looking for certain targets. She is? 
looked for the wounded. The wounded? She looked for the weak. The weak? She looked for the hurt. She looks for the rebellious. The, so the the weak, the rebellious, does she look for overweight white guys like me? She looks, listen now, for those that have a spirit of rejection. Uh-oh. Do you have a spirit of rejection? Well, it could be replaced by the spirit of Jezebel. She could be targeting you. Find out how to conquer Jezebel on the next Kingdom Living. All right. So, I mean, if have you ever been, I mean, this sounds dangerous. I mean, seriously, folks, the, the, who knew? I mean. When I was growing up as a kid, you know, in the 70s, you know, I was worried about, you know, Los Angeles being trashed like Tokyo was by Rodan and Godzilla. But now there's something worse on the loose. It's the spirit of Jezebel. <clears throat> yeah, here's a <laughs> Jonas Clark to explain to us the, the dangers of the, of the spirit of Jezebel, how to identify her and, and put her down. <clears throat> we continue. Hello, God bless you. Welcome to Kingdom Living. I'm Jonas Clark. Today, we're going to talk about the spirit of Jezebel and how to take that spirit out. You know, here on the broadcast at Kingdom Living, we get a lot of people that, that mail. You know, it makes me wonder. I mean, this is some serious language here. We're going to identify that spirit of Jezebel and learn how to take her out. It makes me wonder, is he a, nuba, a pneumophobe? You know, afraid of, ne never mind. And their prayer request on the internet. And um, I like to, to make sure that here on the broadcast, we're ministering to the needs of the people that are watching. I got a letter from a very precious lady here, a, a prayer request, okay? And everybody that sends in a prayer request, I want you to know that we are praying here. I'm praying for you. We're praying here in the studio for you. And we believe that we're to agree as touching anything they ask, that, that God will give it to them, all right? So we got your back. We got you covered in prayer. Now watch. She sent me this, this, e this email, and I don't want to mention her name because she didn't give me permission to, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but here's what she said. She said, please pray for my son. She said that, uh, that he is being controlled by somebody that has a Jezebel spirit and who's operating in the spirit of witchcraft, manipulation, and um, she knows that this devil is trying to take out her son. All right. Now, I'm Sounds serious. sure that if you have a child or if you have a, 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 a son or a daughter, you probably wonder why is the enemy fighting our children? I believe that the Jezebel spirit likes to capture our children as a trophy. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, this sounds very serious. Notice what he said there. I believe that the Jezebel spirit, okay, then likes to dot, 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 whatever. Hmm. Okay. Um. Now, by the way, the Bible does mention somebody named Jezebel. Um. And there is a woman whom Christ refers to as Jezebel in the book of Revelation. So it's not as if there isn't a, some biblical concept behind Jezebel here, but something's off, something's screwy. It's as if he's hijacked this term and has poured into it a whole lot of other stuff that isn't found, well, in the Bible. Think of it this way, okay? Listen, okay, we, we live in a health-conscious age, all right? This, this is true. I mean, I know that there is a significant portion of you out there who listening to Fighting for the Faith, you don't buy just any old food, okay? You buy food that really, truly is 
organic. Truly is natural. It doesn't have artificial flavors, doesn't have artificial sweeteners, isn't filled with, you know, sucrose and all of these little, you know, food chemicals and isn't manufactured by human beings, right? I get that, okay? So let's kind of use that 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 idea here, okay? And here's how this goes. Somebody who is supposedly teaching the word of God and then says, I think, and then starts spewing what comes out of his or her mind is, well, engaging in creating spiritual food that is just chock full of unhealthy ingredients, toxins, uh, chemicals, artificial sweeteners and flavors and stuff like that. Because here's the deal. Um, when it comes to the things of the spirit, um, we are completely dependent upon God's word and what is revealed there. And when somebody starts spewing what's in their mind or claim that they're preaching to you what God laid on their heart, what they're really doing is giving you non-organic spiritual food. In fact, uh, this is highly manufactured, uh, human origin, full of stuff that could probably cause spiritual cancer, um, may, may cause you to die from spiritual arsenic poisoning, things like that, because these ingredients are not good. They're foreign, and you should not be, you should not be imbibing on them. So we, need to do, we as parents and grandparents need to do everything we can to cover our children, all right, by the blood of the Lamb of God, amen, Fight these. What does that mean in that sentence? We need to cover our children with the blood of the Lamb of God. Now, I, I'm a for, firm believer in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ the, the, and his blood propitiating the wrath of God. I'm a firm believer in that. But in that sentence, I had no idea what that means. We need to cover our children with the blood of the Lamb of God? Um, what are you talking about? Things that come against our children to steal, kill, and destroy. Take up the weapons of our warfare, which are carnal, but mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds and guard our children, all right? Yeah, now, uh -huh, yeah. Sounds important. Uh, I mean, you, you don't want your children to be taken out by the Jezebel spirit, do you? long time ago, I used to battle this thing in my backyard, and I didn't know... You <laughs> Um, you did what? <laughs> you <laughs> you battled the Jezebel spirit in your backyard. Really? How did you go about doing that? I mean, was she, you know, fornal caboodling with your lawn gnome? What <laughs> what are we talking about here? It was. I used to, I used to pray a lot in my backyard, yeah. walking around the backyard praying. Uh-huh. And this thing was fighting me. I didn't really know what it was. And it took a while before the Holy Ghost began to reveal to me what it was that I was battling against. And I was battling a Jezebel spirit that was trying to take me out. No way. Are you related to William Tapley? Now, I know that there are thousands of you that are watching right now. You know what I'm talking about. You might not be able to put your finger on it, but you know that there's some force that you can't explain, you can't put your finger on it, but you know there's something trying to still kill and destroy, and you don't quite know what it is. Now, here's the thing. Uh -huh. I'm going to re I need to read to you what the Holy Spirit said to a church in Revelation chapter 2, and then we're going to go into this a little bit more because I want to tell you. Actually, that wasn't the Holy Spirit who said that to a church in Revelation. It was, it was Jesus himself. In fact, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that when you read Revelation chapter 2, 
It's chock full of red letters. The, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's the second person of the, of the Trinity, the Son of God, who revealed this. On the broadcast today, some things that will help you, all right? All and right. I want to, to, to try to help you identify this thing that's coming against you. So that Yeah, that thing that was tackling you in your um, backyard. You're not fighting in the wind, but you'll be, able to, you'll be able to see what it is that's battling against you, all right? Right on. Now, look, in Revelations chapter 2, I want you to see this. Uh-huh. Verse 18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Right. I know your works and charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So in other words, he's commending this church for some good things. And we can liken this church really to a lot of churches today that, that have faith and patience and works and they're on fire for God. So far, so good. But then the, 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 the Holy Ghost shifts gears. No, it's not the Holy Ghost. This is Jesus speaking. And then he says something else, and it's very, very important that you hear it. He says... Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now, look, here's the thing. Please explain. If you look at 1 Kings 18, we also see Jezebel. We refer to her as Queen Jezebel. And if you go back and you look in the Old Testament, there's a caste, there, if you will, if you'll allow me to use that terminology. Okay. There's a caste of Jezebel, her husband Ahab, yeah. the prophet Elijah, who she yeah. fights against. Yeah. Ultimately, she's fighting against God. By the way, her name is Jezebel. Um, yeah, she, I think her father was a, a pretty important person in the worship of Baal. Uh-huh. Then there's Jehu, which I like to refer to him as an apostolic warring conqueror. Okay. We see... He's not in First Kings 18, by the way. He comes a little bit later. This woman, Jezebel, yeah. is, who is given in marriage to Ahab. Yeah. Where did she come from? Well, we know that she came from Phoenicia. Yes. Phoenicia is like modern-day Lebanon. Okay, so far so good. Okay, yeah. It is the land, it was the land of the Phoenicians. Jezebel's father's name was Ethbal. Mm-hmm. He was the high priest, listen now, not only the king of the Sidonians, okay? Jezebel's father was not only the king of the Sidonians, the Phoenicians. He was also the high priest of a spirit, a goddess by the name of Asherah. Asherah is the same spirit that the Shiites worship today. This is important for you to know this. Now watch. When Jezebel is married to Ahab, we see a marriage covenant take place between the daughter of Ethbal, the high priest of Asherah, given to Ahab, the king of Israel, 
and we see a covenant take place. We see two come together. Jezebel now comes into the land of Israel, and now she begins to influence her husband Ahab to steer him away from Jehovah and the ways of God. And she begins to usurp his authority, and we know what she did. She killed the prophets. She gathered people to herself to teach them, to eat underneath their table, etc., etc. Now, then we know at the end of her life that Jehu comes into town, right? We know the testimony, commands the eunuchs to throw her down off of her balcony. She dies, and she's eaten by the dogs, etc. Now, we don't see her name again until years later, thousands of years later, we see in Revelation in the New Testament, we see... Okay, I want to point something out here, okay? Jonas Clark has not done a terrible job of kind of giving us a, a broad sweep through the story of Jezebel, okay? That, see, listen, there are many people who twist the Bible, who don't teach correctly, who are capable of at least at the first giving a cursory overview of a biblical story that has no major bumps, hiccups, or you know, things like that. So, Jezebel's name mentioned again. Now, Revelation chapter 2 is not talking about the same spirit. It's not talking about the same person, but it's talking about a spirit. So now what do we learn from that? We learned that the spirit of Jezebel can live on. So we are not... Rest- now, this is where... <laughs> Poor Jonas, he jumps the tracks here. See, so we can learn that the spirit lives on. The spirit of Jezebel lives on. That's not exactly what's going on in Revelation chapter 2, but I'm going to let him complete his thought here. ...against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against evil forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, this is important. Here's a lady that knows her son is trying to be attacked, or excuse me, is being attacked by a Jezebel spirit. Now, we need to learn some of the traits about this spirit, how the spirit attacks us. What does it do? What, how does God give us, a, what weapons do we have to defend ourselves and to also be more aggressive against it? Some of the things that I think we need to know, look, when I wrote this book a long time ago called Jezebel Seducing Goddess War, when I wrote this book, the reason I wrote it is because it helped me articulate what was happening against me, okay? In your backyard. At that time, I really didn't know what was going on. I'm going to be really serious with you. I would walk around my backyard praying in those days. That's where I'd pray out in my backyard. And... um. There was this force coming against me. I didn't know what it was. And then, and then finally one day God began to reveal to me what was... This is like the Christianized version of alien abduction stories. Coming against me. Now, why would, why would these things be coming against you and I, the born-again believer? Does it, make, it doesn't make sense, does it? Because here we are in the 21st century and we're still dealing with spirits. But, you know, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, verses 10, he says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord... And in the power of his might, right? Then he starts describing the warfare that you and I, the born-again believer, are in. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, we are wrestling, but not against flesh and blood, not against people. But we are wrestling. So he describes, in other words, he pulls back the veil and lets us see beyond the flesh to know that there are there is opposition against us. Jesus said this. Jesus said, the thief cometh only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
which, by the way, it, go back through the archives of Fighting for the Faith recent. Uh, this is from John 10, and it's taken completely out of context, and he's missing the whole point here. Jesus is actually warning us about the thief being the false teacher. Jesus gave us authority. Jesus gave us uh, put gifts inside of us so that we can move forward with our faith, move forward with our life, okay, and do great and mighty exploits. Yeah, what on earth does this have to do with the Jezebel mentioned in Revelation chapter 2? I'm still going to clean this up, but hang on. Gone, but there's an opposition against us. Now, I know what it's like. I have three daughters and three granddaughters, and I know what it's like. To Notice the argument from experience. I have to guard them spiritually, and I understand all the things that you go through as a parent and a grandparent. Yeah, uh-huh. But the enemy wants to take our children as a trophy. So we have to be savvy. We got to know what's going on, all right? All right. Well, so what's going on? I remember when I wrote this book, Jezebel Seducing Goddess of War, I tried to get this particular company to publish it. Now, this is a long time ago before we had a publishing uh, ministry here. Uh -huh. And they didn't like the title, Jezebel Seducing Goddess of War, but that's the title that God gave me. The, who gave you? Oh, so you have direct revelation from God now. Okay. They didn't like the terminology seducing. So you're a prophet. Got it. Goddess of war. Mm -hmm. But the Holy Ghost is the one that gave me the term. And so, so if we didn't like it, so basically this publishing company, well, they were resisting the very will of God. The, the title, so I said, all right, well, if you don't like it, then we'll have to publish it another way. Because God showed me. God showed you. That the number one weapon uh -huh. of the spirit of Jezebel yeah. is seduction. Uh. And so I wasn't going to remove the word seduction out of the title of the book. Yeah, because God, the Holy Spirit, showed you that. Just to make some publisher happy because to me... Oh, you're so brave. If you don't understand how this thing operates, you'll never be able to take it out. Well, it obviously operates in people's backyards. You may not want to go in your backyard anymore. This spirit of Jezebel is hijacking... Our nation, and we have to. It's the spirit of Jezebel that's hijacking. No way. Come against it as the body of Christ. Amen. We need to understand what it is that Jesus is telling us in Revelation chapter 2 and do something about it. And I, uh -huh. I'm convinced today that the Holy Ghost is going to lead us and guide us in truth and help us. Listen, I got to go to a break, but stay with me. I'll, I'll be right back, and I want. Oh yeah, I don't want to miss this. Let's <laughs> let's find out what more we can hear. Uh, by the way, I'm still going to clean this up, but uh, here's the next segment. I'll just skip ahead through the commercial. All right, I talked to you about the book that I wrote, Jezebel Seducing Goddess of War. And let me just uh -huh. say this because I, I don't have a lot of time. Thank God. I can barely get through all the material that I'd like to share with you because we just don't have much time on the broadcast. Now, Sounds like you're really trying to get people to buy your book. I can give you the knowledge of how this spirit operates by the book that I wrote. Just oh, yeah. I'm sure you've got all kinds of insight that isn't anywhere in the Bible. Bill Seducing Goddess of War. I'm, we'll, be, we'll be blessed if we can just get through chapter 1 today, which, which is not going to happen, okay? But we're going to try but now, to catch the spirit that bams that thing, you need to listen to me preach about it, okay? 
<laughs> really? The knowledge is one thing, but you got to catch the spirit of that Jehu spirit that attacks that devil. So, so I need the Jehu spirit to come against the Jezebel spirit. Got it. Makes it move out of your life. And so I, yeah, talk about a narcissistic reading of scripture. A tape series, I have several, but this is a good one for you called Dismantling Jezebel's Network because Jezebel does not work alone. No way. I had no idea. Oh. So there's a network out there. How high up in the ranks of the network is this Jezebel spirit that attacks you in your backyard and is trying to take our kill, uh, children and destroy the country? And so you need to learn about these things. You know, you're sending me emails and you're asking me, so I'm doing everything I can to try to get the materials in your hands yeah. because we have to learn We have to learn what it is that's coming against us. All right. Yeah, okay. So now here's a precious lady whose son is being attacked by a Jezebel spirit. Right. Now, I told you when I wrote the book about Jezebel that the publisher, this is long. How do you know she isn't being attacked like, you know, by the Molech spirit or, you know, name some other, you know, Jehoi the Jehoiakim spirit or, you know, things like that. Time ago before we were publishers, didn't like the title Jezebel Seducing Goddess of War, but the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you already said that. Gave me the title and I, I insisted, I insisted. Oh, way to stick it to the man. That we use the terminology seducing. Why? Because Jezebel must first seduce you yeah. before she can control you. Ah. So this is something that's vital to understanding about this spirit. This is so she's like the ancient uh, pagan concept of a siren. She seduces you, then controls you, and then kills you. So she's like a siren. Got it. Vital, okay? Listen to me. This is vital. Because, look, nobody can take you out unless they first seduce you. They must deceive you first, okay? And Jezebel... <laughs> I have no idea how the rules operate in his universe. Okay, so you can't be taken out unless you're seduced first. Got it. Cloak of deception is released at you for, through the form of seduction, all right? Right, yeah. Okay. And in a book, I talk about all these different ways that that spirit will seduce you, all right? Okay. We'll try to, we'll try to, to get into your favor so you let, let your guard down and you get controlled, all right? Yeah, so you got to keep your guard up so that you're not seduced and then controlled. Now... So we've already learned that Jezebel is a spirit, not a woman, not a gender, all right? We've also learned that, that in Ephesians chapter 6.10, the Apostle Paul rolls back the curtain. It uh, doesn't tell us anything about Jezebel in that chapter. Shows us that we're in a spiritual battle, all right? And we don't need to be afraid of this because Jesus said, I give you authority over serpents and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing, not even Jezebel, nothing by any means shall harm you. Okay. <laughs> enough. Enough. Let me, let me clean this up, Okay. Listen, okay, yes, there's a literary device that Jesus is using in in Revelation chapter 2, okay? Let's let's read a little bit. I'll explain what's going on, and I will explain to you from this text the solution offered for Jezebel, okay? It's, you're going to find it just profoundly simple. doesn't require you to understand anything about major spiritual warfare or anything like that. No, 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 no. listen. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food 
sacrifice to idols. Okay. So the description there is of Jezebel who is teaching, teaching Jesus' servants to practice sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. Okay, now, the name Jezebel here, there, there are some uh, good commentaries out there. Like, for instance, Lenski's commentary says this. Some have assumed that her name was, in reality, Jezebel. But this name is symbolical. What Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, was for the northern kingdom of Israel, that this woman was to the church in Thyatira. So Jesus here is recalling to mind in the church of Thyatira the the biblical character from the Old Testament, Jezebel. So it's basically playing the same role. It's it's a symbolic name for this woman, this false prophetess. Okay. Now listen carefully to the solution that's offered. Let me back it up again. So here we go. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She's not really a prophetess. She is basically putting on a pious facade, claiming to have direct revelation from God, and she's not. And she's teaching, literally teaching, Christ's servants to engage in sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And she's a prophetess, right? So here's Jesus' solution. Are you ready? Listen to how patient, kind, and long-suffering Jesus is. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I mean, think about this, okay? There is a false prophetess at the church in Thyatira whom Jesus likens to Jezebel of the Old Testament. And Jesus' solution is to give her time to repent. Jesus wants her to repent and to be forgiven. But you know what? Here's what it says. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So now, this is terrible. Jesus says, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. So Jesus here, he's not going to just, he, he's not going to go right from, you know, doing, being patient to basically rubbing her out like a bug. No. Instead, what he's going to do, he's, he's going to throw her onto a sickbed. And what's the goal? Christ wants her to repent and to be forgiven. And he's going to afflict those who have committed sexual immorality with her on a sickbed as well. Why? Because he wants them to repent. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So Jesus is going to start basically incurring incremental judgments the goal of which is their repentance and their forgiveness. Jesus doesn't even want to lose Jezebel, doesn't want her to go on like this, and is even willing to forgive her even now, even though she has prophesied falsely, even though she has committed adultery, even though she has taught other guys in the congregation to do these things, even now Jesus is going to forgive her. That's how patient and kind Jesus is, okay? So he says, I will throw them, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Now things are going to get worse. 
I'll strike her children dead, and all the ch- and all the churches will know that I am He, who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So Jesus is going to start stepping up judgments, and the goal of these judgments is her repentance. That's the goal. Now, did Jezebel and her followers repent? Hard to say, but it's not. It's absolutely not even a question how patient, kind, long-suffering Jesus is. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Even in this letter, Jezebel's sin is exposed to everybody in the church, and those who have committed adultery with her and practiced and learned her secret teachings, her gnosis, even then Jesus is calling them to repent and to be forgiven. That's the solution. That's how we fight Jezebel even today. And I'm talking symbolically. You call Jezebel to repent. Repent of her false prophecies. Repent of her seductions. Repent of her sexual immorality. And it's the same thing that Jesus calls you and I to do. Yeah, is it not? Think it through. What about the things you've spoken falsely regarding God? What about the idolatry you've committed? How about the adultery that you've committed? And it don't sit there and say, hey, listen, I haven't actually done the deed with anybody. Yeah, Jesus says, if you look at another with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with that person. How about you? You know what? In this letter, it's clear. Jesus is patient and long-suffering, and he's even calling you to repent and to be forgiven. Jesus then finishes the letter, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, it's it's nothing really exciting, spiritual warfare-ish, requiring you to write an entire book on the Jezebel spirit. Because here's the deal. False prophetesses who seduce people to commit adultery and idolatry, Jesus wants them to repent. And he gives them time to do so. And he even encourages them, encourages them strongly to do so by, well, notice what he does. He disciplines her and steps up the punishments and the judgments in order that to get her attention, to get her attention and cause her to repent and to be forgiven by her kind, merciful, patient, and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's very important, even regarding Jezebel. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can uh, subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. So, uh, do you know why I called you in here today? Am I in trouble? Oh, no, 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 of course not. We're just worried about you. Is this about my tithes? You know, I- I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. Well, you hate me now, don't you? Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it. My attitude? Oh, yes, your attitude. You see, we're all about our Congress having audacious faith. But we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being on Jesus during services. Um, are you talking about the Holy Ghost, Toki Pokey? Is I not dancing right? You know, I, I tried practicing at home, but when I put my whole self in, I fell over and injured Fluffles. Who is Fluffles? Well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if he was breathing. Okay, we we seen you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services. But you could at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them? When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin. But let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service... Then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, won't you please be more audacious and just do the hand motions? Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball and... Uh, this interview is not going as expected. Well, I-, I was practicing hand motions and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye. And the car swerved and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer... Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything that Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church. Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. Uh, Well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I mean months.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek all right we're back warning those people trying to tell you about the jezebel spirit well they're not exactly engaging in sound doctrine. It's more like sensationalistic spiritual warfare that really isn't spiritual warfare. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend, absolutely depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to be able to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the center of the Homepage, you will see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. The one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. Again, we can't do what we do without it. All right, moving along. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. Shiny teeth that sparkle, add a beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten, just like a Christmas tree. You love to walk a mile just to see me smile. Woo! 
shiny teeth and me. That's our Joel Osteen update music. That's uh, Chip Skylark. <laughs> My shiny teeth and me. One of the happiest songs we play here at Fighting for the Faith. Cracks me up every single time. Okay, so this is going to be our first look at uh, Joel Osteen's appearance on Oprah's program the second week. Um, Joel Osteen has uh, been visiting Oprah uh, on her life class. And um, this past week, he appeared on the life class to discuss, well, not the I Am doctrine, which he so horribly flubbed, I mean, flub is like being kind in in describing it. But this week he was uh, he was on Oprah's live class to discuss the idea of dreaming big. And boy, you know this is an interesting theology um, and an interesting good news. But I think it's best if I let Joel Osteen and Oprah do the explaining. So we're going to actually start listening from the beginning of this past week's life class. Uh, Here's Joel Osteen and Oprah to discuss dreaming big. Here we go. We're back. It's like we never left. That's right. Welcome to life class. We're here in the Lone Star State of Texas. Look at you. Coming to you from the beautiful Hobby Center, and I'm raring to go for tonight's class. Pastor Joel Osteen is back with us. In case you didn't know already, I know we have so many of you Lakewooders joining us, but he is the leader of the largest and most diverse church. Hi, Victoria. Were you here last time? No. Okay. How can I miss you in the front row? Okay. Lar- okay. He is a <laughs> pastor of the largest, leader of the largest and most diverse church in America. He's got a new book called I Declare that I know so many of you. Okay. Now I'm going to pause there for a second. And this is, this is a thought that I want you to consider. Okay. I think that one of the reasons why Joel Osteen's theology is creeping into so many churches is exactly for the reason that Oprah just said. And that is is that Joel Osteen is the leader of the largest church in the United States. The largest church in the United States. And um, Oprah herself, she's, um, she's one of the wealthiest women on the planet. She's one of the most successful women in all of human history. Okay? So he, here's the idea is that this success, this level of financial success, numerical success, of, of you know, recognition that their accomplishments are huge, creates a large draw and a very real temptation. Here's the idea. Well, I mean, I, I'll probably never be as successful as Osteen and Oprah, but I can I can teach that same message, and maybe it'll give a boost in in attendance at my congregation. Maybe I can get a a book deal. You know, I, I would point to somebody like Kevin Gerald of the Champion Center up in Tacoma, uh, Seattle area. Okay, Kevin Gerald, I, I constantly refer to him as a cheap Joel Osteen knockoff. I mean, this guy mimics just about everything that Joel Osteen does, period. I mean, he's even come up with his own creed, just like Joel Osteen has come up with his own creed. And the idea is this, is that just you teach this message. And, you know, you, you, in, in the American context, you are almost guaranteed to have a huge 
congregation. And the the idea is is that the the fact that Oprah and Joel are so successful creates that temptation in the minds of many many pastors. You see, that's I think where the uh, where a lot of the temptation is to go this round. You are doing daily work with it's in stores right now. So it was a few weeks ago when we dug into the power of I am, and I hope you all saw that. Pastor Joel talked about how whatever follows those two simple words, I am, is going to come looking for you. It determines the kind of life that you live. So in tonight's... Flat out magic. That that ain't Christian doctrine. ...lesson. I'm so excited, so excited, so excited. (laughs) We're taking it a step further because we're challenging all of you to take the limits off of what you think is possible and dream big. That means discovering the dream that God has for you. Okay, now, take the limits off of your dreams and discover the dream that God has for you. My immediate question when I hear somebody talking like this is... Chapter and verse, please. Where in the Bible does it say, does God promise to all of us that he has got some huge dream that we need to take the limits off of and to discover? It's, it's, it's a, have you discovered your God-sized dream yet? Boy, this sure would play well in Peoria and Houston and large portions of the United States of America, but is this really the message that the apostles of Jesus Christ taught and believed? The reason I ask this is because, keep in mind, okay, Jesus, when he was on earth, he took to himself 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him, okay? One of them betrayed him, and Jesus was crucified, uh, you know, as a result of his betrayal, okay? But Okay, let's, you know, the surviving 11 apostles then replaced uh, replaced Judas with Matthias. And so here's the question I have. The, all those three years that Jesus took time and invested that time in teaching, training up the apostles, was it that he was training them up with this message? Go ye therefore into all the world and teach them how to discover the huge dream that I have for their lives. Does this even remotely sound like anything Jesus actually said? The answer is no. Jesus didn't say anything even remotely approaching this. So we've got a real big problem. Okay, number one, we have two very successful, very wealthy people that by all American standards, these people are, they are living it. They are living the dream that most Americans really are aspiring for. There's a whole lot of people out there who would sell their mother into slavery in order to have the wealth and influence and power that Osteen and Oprah have. Okay. And this is their message. What does this have to do with Christ? What does this have to do with repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Answer, Nothing. We continue. Now, for me, dreaming big has never been about money or fame. 
I just happened to get it along the way. But the dream was never about getting money or fame. It's about the process of continually seeking to be better. And my prayer from the time I was a little girl was, God, use me, God, use me, God, use me. And it just so happens that God chose to use me in the world on a platform that caused me to have money and fame. I see that. Now, I have to ask a question. With all the false doctrine that comes out of Oprah's mouth and the guests that she has on to discuss spirituality, people like Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, Joel Osteen, do you really think that it is God who has blessed Oprah and given her this platform so that she can make a difference in everyone's lives? No, not at all. The one, the one person we can rule out as really ultimately being responsible for all of this is God. Okay, this is, you know, God did not send her to teach this heresy. God did not send her to teach the spirituality, this new age stuff that she does, the law of attraction, uh, Deepak Chopra's new age mysticism, or in Eckhart Tolle's nonsense. No, the, she is not an agent of the one true God. She really, truly is, because of this false teaching, an agent of the evil one. Very clearly in my life. Yeah, it's so important, and what a great job you've done. But that's, that's the way God is. His dream for our life is big. Many times we limit him because we think, well... Okay, so Joel Osteen tag-teaming with Oprah just affirmed her as being sent by God and now is saying God's dream for our life is big. Okay, I come back to my first question. Chapter and verse, please. Where does it say this? Oprah, I don't have the education, or I don't have the money, or I don't know the right people. But you know what? God never tells you to figure everything out. He says if you believe, all things are possible. And so I think... No, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Believe what? Believe that God has a big dream for my life? Notice what he's doing here. The object, well, the, the object of our belief is different in Osteen's theology. Okay? Belief is trust. Okay, when we when we talk about the biblical concept of faith or belief, the Greek word that's being used there, um, the verb form is pistuo, or the the noun form is pistis. Okay, it means faith or trust, and the idea is is that faith or belief and trust has always has as an object. Okay, so notice that the object of belief is different now. Okay, biblical Christians are called to f- have faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, okay? That's the call of faith, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is the object of our faith, okay? This is different. Joel Osteen is saying that all things are possible for them that believe. Believe what? Believe that God has a big dream for their lives. Believe that it's it's huge and that God is powerful and limitless and, and will bring that dream to pass, the object of belief is completely changed. I think that's a big part of it. It's just yes, yeah, yeah. taking the limits off of him. So apparently you've put limits on God if you're thinking small regarding your dreams. So I would have to say, we talked about this when I came to your house and, and interviewed you in, in Victoria, that from a little girl, I was looking at what did I really believe. I believed I would sit on the, on the second pew from the front on the right every Sunday. That was my spot. Uh, I was baptized when I was eight years old. And I really did believe, when I look back at my life, 
I believed I was God's child. And I believed that because I was God's child, being born in Mississippi, being born in the segregated South, being born, I really did believe that anything was possible for me. And that's what has carried me to this space. And that's what we... Now, is that really the message of the gospel? Okay, think about it this way, okay? Remember, was it last week uh, we reviewed the, uh, the David Hughes sermon? You know, how to hug a vampire. And uh, he was supposedly preaching the book of Philemon, uh, which is only a chapter long. It's a, it's a tiny letter. But remember the setup for that, for that letter. Um, Philemon is a slave owner. Okay, And understand, Roman Empire slavery is actually different than race, the racial slavery that occurred in the United States of America. Unfortunately, when you say the word slavery, the thing that comes to mind is pre-Civil War, United States of America, uh, and Africans being enslaved. That's, it's, the Roman Empire's slavery is similar and different at the same time. Okay, Not that it makes it any better. I'm not trying to defend slavery at all. But the point is this is that Philemon is a slave owner. Paul is writing a letter to him, and he's sending the letter to Philemon via a slave, Onesimus, who had run away. Okay? And Paul was sending him back without knowing whether or not uh, Philemon would, uh, well, exert his rights as an owner and uh, and you know and enslave him again, okay? No no guarantees there, but over and again, God the Holy Spirit, the word you know with this the the word in light of the gospel given to uh, slaves in, in you know in the time of uh, the Roman Empire at the time that uh, Paul was writing his letters was this: slaves obey your masters. Now, I don't know about you, but by any by any measure of the American dream, um, the concept of slaves obey your masters, that's no thats no huge dream. That actually sounds like a pretty tough life. And yet that's what God the Holy Spirit commanded slaves to do. Not to dream big. Instead, to obey their masters in every detail with this understanding that God is watching them. And that their master ultimately is Jesus. So, yeah, we've the, the, the New Testament theology is very much directly opposed to this idea that Oprah is putting forward here. We want to offer you all tonight. You become what you believe. And to believe that you are created by the power that's greater than yourself. Yes. And that to live in that space means anything's possible. It- it really does, Oprah. And, you know, I, th- I think that's the key. You knew you were a child of God. You knew you were a person of purpose. I really believed it. Yeah, when, when you- yeah boy, that's great. Uh, tell me about Jesus again. Because this seems like a Jesus-less, Christless religion here. Notice how carefully she talked about God as you know being a higher power. But what about Jesus? What about the cross? What about repentance? What about the forgiveness of sins? You believed you were a child of God, and you're discussing that you are being a child of God apart from faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
You have that on the inside. It's amazing you had it as a little girl because some of the things you went through. But when you have that on the inside, it's what ignites the what I call the seeds of greatness God's put on the inside of every one of us. Okay, question. Where in the Bible does it say that God has placed seeds of greatness on the inside of every one of us? The answer is nowhere. You will not find a single biblical passage that says that God has placed seeds of greatness inside of you, me, or anybody else. So Joel Osteen at this point is spinning out his own theology without any biblical text to back it up whatsoever. This is the classic sign of a heretic. This is the hallmark uh, harbinger sign. This man is a flat-out heretic. The problem is some people have had people push them down. Hey, man, you're not that talented or, you know, yeah. just those negative voices. And that's limiting what, who they can become. But, you know, you've got to break free from that and say, God... I'm your child, you breathe your life into me, and I believe I can accomplish the destiny for my life. All right. And everybody has a destiny. Everybody does. Okay, now listen, this is important, okay? The, Joel Osteen is supposedly a Christian pastor, okay? Everybody has a destiny. Hmm. Interesting that he's talking about this as if somehow this is the good news. Hey, listen, God has some big plan for your life. Yeah, don't worry. Just you stop. Don't just think of yourself as a child of God without Christ, without His cross, without repentance, without the forgiveness of sins, because none of that's mentioned. And dream big, because each and every one of us have seeds of greatness inside of us. And all we got to do is come to grips with the fact that we're children of God, and and that means anything's possible. This isn't the gospel. This is a counterfeit gospel. Yeah, truly, for those listening, this might be like good news, but this isn't the biblical good news. This is a completely foreign gospel, a false good news. You know, it's different. Sometimes, uh, I mean, it's obviously different, but sometimes it may not be what we think it's going to be. Correct. I never thought, Oprah, that I could get up in front of people. I'm naturally very quiet, reserved. I had never ministered in public one time before, before my dad died. Well, I did one time only, but, you know, I say that to say there are gifts and talents in us all that we don't know we have. Yeah, you did that sermon just before he died. He was in the yeah. hospital. Yeah, I did a sermon. I never preached in the 17 years I worked behind the scenes doing the television production. I'd never ministered one time. I'd said, Daddy, I'm not a preacher. can't get up in front of people. I wouldn't know what to say. And so 17 years, I was comfortable back there. And really, that was the, that was the destiny for my life at that time. But when my dad died, all of a sudden, I ministered one time. He died suddenly of a heart attack. All of a sudden, I had this desire on the inside. It was just instant. I had a desire to step up and pastor the church. Well, in my mind, it didn't make sense because I'd never ministered. I'd never been to seminary. You know, my, the, my own voices were saying, Joel, you've got to be crazy. All but your you know own what? I am. Yeah, yeah. I, but I took that step of faith, and you know what? God gave me the grace for that, for that season, and you know, never dreaming that it would grow. But look at today, you know, where I am. So I say all that to say, you know, the, the destiny can change. I mean, it's not a surprise to God, but you have to be open for change. I think you have to watch for, uh, wait for God's timing as well. But I, th I think what I really feel strong is there are things on the inside of us, gifts, talents, potential that he, we have not yet tapped into. I believe that as long as we're breathing, there's potential on there that we're supposed to be growing and being better. Okay, again, my question again. Chapter and verse, please. Where does the Bible say this? And, uh, you know, tapping into what God's put on the inside. You know what? I also believe, and I, I, I actually know to be true, 
uh, and I learned this, and people heard me tell the story, so I won't go into it, when I was first trying out for the color purple, that God can dream a bigger dream for you than you can dream for yourself. And uh, well, you know, what kind of nonsense is this? God can dream a bigger dream for you than you can dream for yourself. Man, talk about self-absorbed. And what you want in your life, what you really want, is not your little piddly dreams for yourself. Because I had some piddly dreams. I wanted to be a millionaire. I wanted a nice house. And what God dreamed for me, what you want to do is to be able to live in the space. You know that beautiful Bible verse in Acts that says, in God I move and breathe and have my being. You want to be able to live in that space of... What does that even mean? God's dream for you. So the question I think is, what is God's dream for you? We want to talk about what is the difference between what is the difference between dreaming and wishing for something. I think most people spend their life they wish for things, they want things. I want a new car. I want a thing. That's different than living the bigger dream. Because tonight we're talking about what is the big dream for yourself. Yeah, I think the big dream for yourself is it's tied onto your purpose. It's it's bigger than just you. Meaning that. Your dream should be connected to helping other people as well. Yes. When, when, it's, when it's just, like you said, when it's just. Now, it sounds so pious. I mean, oh, see, uh, as long as it's altruistic, d- yeah, dream away. You know, God, I want a lot of money. I want to do this. But, you know, it's very different when you say, you know what, God, I, I want to fulfill my purpose so I can be a blessing to others as well. Of course, you're going to take care of your family, but it's, it's about, you know, Fulfilling your purpose, which is, I believe, God's dream is always tied in some way to helping other people. Yeah. Some way to making the world a better place. Okay, now notice what's not happening. People are not being confronted with their sins and brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're basically being told, listen, you know, God's up there waiting. You know, he, he really, he's got this huge dream for you. I mean, did you ever hear that before? He's got this huge dream for you, and and, and we're going to help you get there because you're a child of God. And yet the people he's talking to are not, you know, are not necessarily Christians. It's a diverse audience there at uh, Oprah's Life class. Whatever we have, we're here as a part of the human family to offer to ourselves and to the rest of the human family. Yeah. All right, so let's take a look at... Whatever you had in the prompter there a minute ago and you just took down. What did you all say? Take. A, let's take a look at... Where's, where's that intro, guys? Put it back up. Hello. <laughs> take a look at what some of the biggest dreamers have taught me over the years. Take a okay, look. now, I'm not going to name off the, all the people that are on this, this reel, Okay. You got Ted Turner, I mean, and all just a whole host of people who are not necessarily religious folks. You got uh, you got athletes and and movie stars and artists and people like that in this. But notice Joel Osteen, supposedly a Christian pastor, telling people who aren't pagans that they're a child of God without them being brought to repentance and faith in Christ. And and the good news is God has a big dream for you. So now Oprah is going to reiterate this by putting up a montage of very well-known stars, people who, when we see their face, we would say these are people who are successful at what they do. And see, these are people, they're, they're children of God, too, and they're living the dream. Listen. Do you have the courage to dream big? 
My father told me when I was a small boy. Just so you know, that's Ted Turner. He he strongly recommended that I set my goals so high that I couldn't achieve them in my lifetime. So I'm trying to help save the world, and I don't anticipate achieving it completely. But I'm pretty sure you won't because Jesus did that. Would like to. I have goals that always, they, they morph. You know, I have morphing goals that when I get near it, I change it and it gets so that I'm always striving because I, I feel like the last thing I'd ever want to do is just achieve a goal and be like, okay, I'm good now. And then be like, okay, so now what? I never dreamed I'd be doing what I'm doing now. But see, we thought if we could just maintain what my parents had built, that'd be great. But I don't think that's, you know, that's not God's dream. He wants every generation to build and go further. When you create a vision for your life, doors will open. Really? So if I create a vision for my life, doors will open. What Bible verse says this? If you don't have a vision, you're going to be stuck in what you know. And the only thing you know is what you've already seen. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, right. But a vision that grows inside of you, a vision that wakes with you, sleeps with you, moves with you, a vision that you can tap into. I have a vision that these heretics, no one would listen to them anymore and would stop sending them their money and that they would completely shrivel up, become completely like yesterday's newsprint. There's my dream and my vision. How's that? It's very altruistic too. On your worst, worst, worst days, the vision will pull you forward. You know, I had a dream. And I knew I had to sing my way to it. And I was like, you know what? It's going to happen. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know where. But it's going to happen, and I'm just going to have to sing my way to it. If it's not hard, you're not dreaming big enough. Yeah, make sure it's a sufficiently difficult dream. Uh, Bible verses, please. Yeah, there are none. When I started the business 21 years ago, you know, I just wanted... Paula Dean. My children and I to be able to pay our bills and buy groceries. And so now what would you say to somebody who has an idea for a dream for themselves? To go for it. You know, there's no sin in failing, but the sin is in never trying. Yeah. Bible verses to back any... We're talking tonight. All right. So that kind of gives you an idea of what's going on there. Now, what I would like to do is read to you a quote, okay? A, A quote from Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther, actually, uh, he, he wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah, commentary on the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter one, verse two, uh, where the Isaiah says, hear, O heavens and give ear, O earth for the Lord has spoken. Let me read to you a portion of what Martin Luther writes here, because it's important for us to understand the difference between how a true prophet, a true messenger from the real God, the one true God speaks, as opposed to, well, somebody who is really an agent of the devil. Okay, Here's what he says. Isaiah is an exceedingly eloquent prophet, endowed with a rich supply of words. He is a man who speaks with great earnestness, but this scripture's way, but this is scripture's way. First, to terrify, to reveal sins, to bring on the recognition of oneself, to humble hearts, 
Then, when they have been driven to despair, its second office follows, namely, the buoying up and consolation of consciences uh, through the promises. This is how the Holy Spirit teaches. Okay, this is the idea between law and gospel. So God even operates in law and gospel. When you know God first terrifies us and shows us our sinful condition. This is why Jesus, in Luke twenty-four, says. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. When you look at how Peter preaches uh, in the book of Acts, always confronting people with their sins. I mean, he's going so far as to pointing his bony finger at people and saying, you crucified the Lord of life, right? And then consoling them with the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. This is how God operates. And, I, and Luther points this out in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. But listen carefully to how he says Satan operates. Satan, on the other hand, worms his way in by means of sweet speeches and flattering words until he infects innocent hearts, and then he leaves behind horrible terror and despair without consolation. You see, Satan works the exact opposite. Satan weasels his way in and says, oh, you're great. Say, go, go, go in the mirror and say, I am strong. I am talented. I am all of this. Oh, yeah. See, Satan does this thing, and so he worms his way in with these sweet speeches and flattering words. But here's the end result, okay? To the person who falls for this false teaching and believes that this is really from God, they've had their ego boosted. They've had their self-esteem puffed up. They believe that God is waiting to give them a huge dream. And then their life plays out. And at the end of it, they haven't heard of the forgiveness of sins or of repentance, nor have they come to understand that God was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate in their place for their sins. And so at the end of the day, Satan and all of his flattering words and puffing people up and making them feel great about themselves at the end will leave them in utter despair because on the last day, Rather than hearing, well well done, good and faithful servant, they will instead hear, depart from me. I never knew you. So what, what this teaching leaves at the end is horrible terror and complete despair. And worse than that, the entire torments of hell, because they were never confronted with their sins and brought to trust and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They were told that they're children of God already, without the cross, without the shed blood of Jesus, where Jesus makes it clear that you are of your father, the devil. If you are not in Christ, if you have not been brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, sorry, you are not a child of God. You are a child of the devil, and you are by nature an object of God's wrath and still under God's wrath. This is what Scripture reveals. This is why a true minister of Christ must preach sin and the forgiveness of sins, must preach law and gospel, sin and grace, heaven and hell, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Joel Osteen doesn't do that, and neither does Oprah. And the message that they give people ultimately will cause all of these people who are saying these fine words about themselves and exalting themselves and building themselves up and thinking, I just got to fulfill some big dream, At the end of it, they will be left with the ultimate terror and the ultimate dread and ultimate despair. And none of this needs to be this way. Because if Joel Osteen were truly a Christian pastor, 
he would be pointing them to their crucified and risen Savior. And the fact that he doesn't proves over and again Joel Osteen is no Christian pastor. He is a an apostate heretic who works for the devil. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices right down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time Let's do this right. Here we go. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via daystar church atlanta georgia johnny enlow presiding the name of said sermon is called a razor's edge now as you listen to this sermon okay 
He's not going to engage in some of the goofier things that we've heard during sermon time here at Fighting for the Faith. Instead, he's going to be off in his understanding of Scripture because his emphasis is on the wrong syllable. That's right. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable. By the way, the Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. And if you miss that fact, then the Bible remains pretty much a locked book and you end up missing the whole point. Yeah, see, it's the story of the Messiah. So if you're a little confused about how that all works, listen to last Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith regarding the Christological epicenter of Scripture. That will be a good benefit for you if you have not already listened to it. So... With that, I want you to listen carefully to how he handles the biblical text. But what's really interesting about the sermon, one of the more fascinating things is, is that in the opening portion of the sermon, he asks probably one of the more important questions you can ask of anybody. And the answer given throughout the sermon, not so good. So with that, let me kill the music here. With that, we're going to dive into our sermon review. Here is Johnny Enlow and his sermon entitled A Razor's Edge. I wanted to say random thoughts. They're not necessarily so random, but um, they're all connected in some way, but they cover a, a, a variety of angles in our, in our um, life of faith. And it started uh, earlier this week when I was, um, I was reading something that pointed me to um, something else. It was one of those things where you follow the trail and, and you, you end up, going, oh, that's something that God had to say to me today. And it, this, where, where this trail led was to a, an old essay written by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory, which is also put into a book by the same name. And um, I, I'm not so much going to camp out on, on that and what he was talking about this week, but he, he made a comment and pointed out a, a dynamic that... Um, that led to one thought, that led to another thought, that led to another thought. And that's, that's where I want to go with it. But I'll, I'll start with what he said, and I don't need to summarize the whole essay, but, but he was talking about this. There's a couple of passages in the New Testament where, um, where, where you would expect it to, talk, to, to say, um, where the, for the emphasis to be on our knowing God. And instead of us knowing him, the emphasis is on him knowing us. And one of those passages is in uh, 1 Corinthians 8.3 where Paul says, If anyone loves God, he is known by him. And you would expect it to be if anyone knows God, uh, if anyone loves God, he knows or, or the emphasis to be on him knowing God. But it's, it's not that. It's on, it's on God knowing him. Those who love God are known by him, and, and the, the word there is in a very intimate, uh, familiar, relational sense, not just known about. It's not just that he knows. Okay, this is actually a, a legitimate biblical point that uh, Johnny Enlow here is borrowing from C.S. Lewis's sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. You can Google it. You can find it. It was originally presented as a sermon, I think, at Oxford, but we continue knows your name is that he knows that he knows you um the second passage it's it's used in the same way but in a much what lewis calls a much more frightening sense it's that passage where people where, where jesus says there will be those who come to me in that day and they'll say lord did we not prophesy in your name do we not do miracles in your name and he'll say depart from me i never knew you 
those who practice lawlessness. And it's a really scary, frightening verse to think that there, that there are people who will be able to say to Jesus on the last day, we followed you. We, did, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles. We did all this kind of stuff that's supposed to be Christian activity, and we even did it with your power in that. And yet for Jesus to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay. Right. Exactly. This is a terrifying and frightening passage. In, in fact, if you, have, if, if you are able to read this passage and not somewhat get nervous or shake in your boots or not feel like, whoo, whoa, I question whether or not you have the ability to feel, period. This is a terrifying proposition. So that being the case, at this point, since you've you know kind of like opened up the subject here, I think Pastor Enlow has a responsibility to assuage our consciences and give us hope so that we do not hear from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. Let's see if he does that. Um, now, that's I'm not going to go into that today, but I would encourage you to wrestle with that a good bit. <laughs> um, well, thanks. Yeah, let me just wrestle away. Um, serious? You're a pastor. You know that you can actually give us comforting good news here, right? Because that's not a casual statement by Jesus. And um, it's one of those that that can either drive people away from him or draw them closer to him. And I, I would encourage you to go after that in a way that draws you closer to him, um, in, in a way that you can know that you know that you know, not that you know him, but that he knows you in that relational, familiar, intimate sense. But when Lewis is talking about um, these two passages, he says, so we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. Or, on the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. And he says, we walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. And where that led to was, at least in, in my mind at the time, was there are so many areas of our life that are like that, that are a razor's edge of difference. It seems like a minor shift in perspective this way or uh, hey, wait, wait. before you change the subject there, dude. Serious. We're talking you you were talking about the ultimate razor's edge. And your solution is just yeah, go ahead and wrestle with that. I mean, you, dude, you don't bring up such a thing without giving us comfort. I, you know, and showing us the solution to this. Watch what he does. That that makes a humongous difference in the outcome of our lives and the way we live. And so I, I want to call this message the razor's edge. Um, I don't know if Glenn's here today. Yeah, there you are. Glenn always comes up to me after every message and says, what are we going to call this? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And um, so I have a title today. So I'm really excited. It's called the razor's edge. <laughs> and And there's like, I just almost immediately thought of seven or eight, um, maybe even more than that, areas where it's like that. We're walking on a, a razor's edge that for us, at least internally in our own minds, is just a very minor shift or seems to be a minor shift in perspective. And yet, in the outcome of how we live, 
turns out to be to make a major difference in, in whether we step into what God is calling us into or not. So the first one that I want to talk about is one I actually mentioned last time when I was up here, which was, you, you know how it is some days you can wake up and it's either going to be a difficult journey or it's going to be an exciting adventure. And a lot of times you don't know which of those it's going to be. You don't know what your perspective is until you've had your coffee or until you've had your time with the Lord or whatever it is. <laughs> What are you talking about? I mean, seriously, he brings up the ultimate razor's edge, and now we're talking about adventure or something else? Whoa. Also know what's missing here. So far, no Bible. But, you know, you, you wake up with one of, not necessarily a clear difference every day, but sometimes you, you just wake up feeling like this day is going to be hard. And some, some days you wake up and you think this day is going to be exciting. And what's the difference? Well, I want to share with you a story that where this kind of got brought home to me um, a few weeks ago. I told you um, last time about my trip to to Mexico. I spent um, a little over a week in, in Mexico back in August, and um, had spent a few days in Juarez. And then we were uh, there were there were three of us on this trip, and we were visiting a um, a, a pastor there. And after um, speaking a couple times in Juarez and, and, and going to church there and everything, we were going to drive up into the mountains. It's about an eight-hour drive up into the, the high Sierra of western Mexico uh, to... So does your trip to Juarez have anything to do with answering that ultimate razor's edge question that you brought up at the front end of this thing? Why are we talking about your trip to Juarez? Why aren't you opening up the Bible and actually reading it? to see the ministry among the Tarahumara people who don't have any, whose language is not in any written form. Um, they live just kind of scattered throughout the mountains, and some of them don't have electricity, some of uh, just indigenous people of Mexico, but there's a lot of stuff going on ministry-wise among them. And so I was taking along a camera and going to do some interviews and, and that kind of stuff, but it was going to be a long drive. And our our the, the pastor who was hosting us, Jorge, has, uh, has this compact SUV, and there were uh, what I thought was going to be four of us going up in it, um, but it turns out there was going to be five of us going up in it, which means three of us sitting in the back seat, and generally, as is the case, this time I'm the guy with the shortest legs, which means I'm going to be in the middle and doing this thing where I'm holding on to the seat and making sure, because we're guys and, you know, we lean on each other spiritually, but not so much physically. And I'm like <laughs> balancing myself. I'm thinking of this winding road through the mountains and, and how that's going to be. Well, I, I find out that this guy, um, Mauro, is, is going to go with us. And uh, Jorge's telling us about him, and he's, he's a pastor, um, but he's also a doctor. And he's not only a doctor, he's a doctor who's done some herbal medicine and, and um, natural, natural healing practices and been into acupuncture. And, um, but he's also a licensed, you know, more typical physician. And so he's going to go with us. And so there's, there's going to be five of us in this SUV and we're, it's going to be an eight or eight hour drive. And I'm thinking, okay, just endure, just endure. It's going to be all right. Just endure. And, um, the night before, I, I have this issue in, that kicks up about three or four times a year in my hips where they just kind of freeze up and feel 
incredibly painful. And usually it's one or the other. Every once in a while it's both, which is really not a good situation. But it's, it's, it's the kind of pain. I don't know what it is. I've had it tested and all that kind of stuff. And I've, uh, there are as many theories about it as there are doctors that I've seen. And, um, but, but it's incredibly painful, the kind where you just, it hurts to roll over in bed. And God forbid that there be a cough or a sneeze because it just, it, it's just bad. And, but it comes and it lasts for three or four days, sometimes a week, and then it goes away. And this happens three or four times a year. And I'm fine every other time throughout the year. I'm glad to hear that. But your job is to preach the word. Where's the Bible right now? Why aren't you opened to a a text, reading it and telling us what God has revealed there? I mean, sorry, but sermon time isn't tell us your story time, nor is it time to like break HIPAA violations, uh, you know, HIPAA rules. I mean, keep your medical stuff in issues, you know, keep it to yourself. You know, we we haven't come here to walk through your medical charts. People go to church to hear God's word rightly preached and proclaimed and sound doctrine and to hear about Jesus, not your medical quirks. Well, the night before, the day before this trip up into the mountains, that happens. And so I'm in the hotel room and I get out of bed that night and honest to goodness, it's five minutes between the bed and the desk in that small hotel room. And I drop something on the floor and I can hardly lean over and pick it up. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is going to be an interesting trip because we're supposed to get up in the mountains and we're supposed to do some hiking and we're supposed to go see these remote people. And I'm just, I'm praying, Lord, what's, I, I don't know how this is going to go. Well, wake up the next morning. It's, and it's an eight hour trip. And Jorge says, we need to leave around five 30 or so. So we get up there, um, not too late in the day. And so we're, we're up super early and I come down into the lobby and there's uh, Jorge and the two other guys that I'm with. And, and then Mauro, the, the doctor who's dressed in a leather jacket and a Harley Davidson cap. And, um, <laughs> and he's, he's a great guy, really interesting guy, but, but he's, he's, he's a little bit unique and um, which I love about him. But Jorge introduces us to him and we sit down and, and Jorge says, I was telling Mauro about, about the problem you were having with your hips yesterday. And he said, remember, he's a doctor. And Mauro says, yeah, I think there's something we can do about that. And all of a sudden, I'm a, I have this picture of me up in the high mountains of Mexico in this remote area with acupuncture needles sticking out of me everywhere. And I'm thinking, I, okay. Um, <laughs> And, and Mauro says, yeah, we can, um, if, if you want a, 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 an injection, I, I think if I can give you a shot of B12 and cortisone. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds normal. Okay, let's do <laughs> I, I think I'd be okay with that. And so we agreed that so, somewhere between here and there, we were, I was going to get an injection and he was going to do that. And so anyway, we, we get in the car. It's before sunrise. We start heading out of town. And... Um, we get about an hour out of the city and we go through this military checkpoint because, you know, Wardis has had, you know, quite a bit of trouble in the last few years. And um, 
so we, we go through this checkpoint, and there's this guy standing up on top of a tank with this machine gun and all the ammunition all over him and everything. And, and the guy rolls down the window and kind of looks at our papers, and he moves us on. And, and we're like, what, they, they're not going to search the car? And he said, oh, no, they x-rayed the car. No biblical passage yet, 11 minutes, 30 seconds into this sermon, no appearance of God's word at all yet. I'm like, really? And so apparently there's this big massive x-ray, which is which they can do once everybody's out of the car. It's totally illegal for them to do it while we're in the car, but it's really the easiest and quickest way for them to check that there are no weapons or drugs or anything in there. So anyway, we went through this massive x-ray without even knowing it and finding out a little while down the road. And about an hour out of, uh, out of town, right past this checkpoint, we stopped for breakfast. I think it was the first time I'd ever had refried beans for breakfast, and that was interesting. That was good. Sun's starting to come up. And yeah, so your medical problems and refried beans for breakfast. Wow. Do you think you can actually get to a biblical text? And um, it, no, this is the desert of Chihuahua, and it's just totally, completely flat. You can see mountains way off in the distance, but there is, there is nothing green as far as the eye can see. Uh, totally flat, and, and it's beautiful, but it is—it's out there, um, except for this one little town where we stopped for breakfast. And and then as we're getting back in the car, Mauro turns around. And he says, "You still want that shot?" And I'm like, "Yeah, okay." No, I forgot to tell you on the way there. You know, getting to know Mauro. Um, uh, He—he's a pastor. He's a doctor. Um, he's into Harley Davidson. And he apparently knows almost everything about 70s music. And so we're having this conversation about, oh, you remember Rush? And I'm like, well, sort of. And Really? Okay, we continue. Is like trivia question. What 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 band did Clapton play in before he went solo? And I'm thinking, okay, you win because <laughs> I don't know some of these things. And it, so he's. You know, just driving along with this character, and we get in get in the car after breakfast, and he turns around and he says, "You want that? You still want a shot?" And I said, "Yeah, let's let, let's do that." So we stop by the side of the road in this little town in Mexico, and he run. We run into the pharmacy, which apparently you can buy injections over the counter in Mexico, um, certain kinds of them. So we run in. He gets this shot. And I'm lying in the back of this compact SUV, getting a shot in my rear end with the door open, and the the rest of the guys standing out there on the sidewalk, and <laughs> and Morrow starts to give me this shot, and and you know some shots go in kind of easy, and you hardly feel them. This is not one of those shots. <laughs> and I let out something that indicates that it hurts. And <laughs> some sort of, of, of expression. And he's like saying, I know, I know. And I'm like having flashbacks to the pediatric office and yet at the same time visions of a back alley drug deal. And I'm not sure which one of those things it is. <laughs> it's kind of going back and forth between those things. And I'm like, Okay, but, okay, we get back in the car, he throws the, the needle away, and I'm riding along now in the middle, cramped as I can be with my hips killing me and a sore rear end. And <laughs> we're, we're driving along through the desert, the sun's up now, I've been x-rayed, I've been shot, I've got refried beans in my stomach, and and I'm thinking, you know, if someone had told me last week 
this is what would be happening a week from now, I'm not sure I would have believed it. This is not what I envisioned for how this day was going to go. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it can get much weirder than this. And then Mauro picked 15 minutes now. We're at the 15-minute mark for this sermon. Still no appearance of God's Word. Picks up the stack of CDs in Jorge's car, and he starts shuffling through them. And I'm thinking, okay, it's either Pink Floyd or worship music, and it really could go either way at this point. <laughs> <laughs> And so he plugs it in, and the next thing I know, I'm listening to Tony Bennett sing, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. <laughs> Spend the next hour listening to Tony Bennett going through the Chihuahuan Desert with nothing as far as you can see. And all of a sudden, I, I just, I have this thought, I love this. <laughs> this day that started out in excruciating pain has led to an adventure where I feel alive. This is really cool. I have no idea what this has to do with the Bible. I, none whatsoever. It's really weird. <laughs> but it's really cool. And I'm looking at the mountains up ahead, and I'm thinking, okay, in a couple hours we're going to be up there, and we're going to be winding through them. And, you know, the the... The journey looks great when you're starting out, and it looks great when you're actually there, but kind of the journey itself can be sort of nauseating sometimes. And I'm thinking, you know, it's, that's kind of how it is sometimes. This day started out feeling like an arduous journey, and it's ending up being an exciting adventure. And I'm not sure what made the difference, because not everything that's happened between then and now has been pleasant. But what makes an adventure... An adventure. We'll see unexpected, right? It's not knowing what's going to happen next. We like good surprises. We don't like, like bad surprises. But I think more than either of those things, we don't like boredom. We don't like stagnancy. 17 minutes now into the sermon. Um, no appearance of God's word yet. He led off with like the ultimate question. You know, it's scary proposition that Christ says that God's word says that you are known by God and that Jesus will say to some who prophesied in his name, I never knew you. Um, can, <laughs> whoa, this is, this is, um, <clears throat> notice what's going on here. He's up there telling everybody about himself. There's a reason why he's telling everybody about himself. Because his theology has the emphasis on the wrong syllable. We continue. We don't like predictability. And it would be great if the adventure God sent us on was nothing but good surprises and never bad surprises. But if you're going for the unexpected, it's got to be, like, unexpected. If that makes sense. Ah, <laughs> oh, profound, yeah. You can't say, Lord, I want adventure in my life. Now here's what I want. Here's how it should go. Because as soon as you do that, it's not an adventure. It's just a trip. And if you're like me, 
you go back and forth between those two, two things really, really easily sometimes. Between the, this is going to be a tough journey, or this is going to be an interesting adventure. What does this have to do with anything? I mean, quite frankly, I, I'll be blunt. I don't really even know if I ever in my life go, oh, this is going to be an adventure. I do have times in my life that are tough to get through, and I think this is going to be tough. But I can't say I've ever had the opposite experience where, oh, this is going to be an adventure. You know, maybe once or twice, but I don't even think of it in those terms. Am I sinning because I haven't? And what have you done with God's Word? We're now at 18 minutes without God's Word appearing at all, period, in this sermon. It's a razor's edge in our mind that's just a little bit this way or a little bit that way can make an enormous difference in how we approach life. Around the office, every once in a while, we have to remind ourselves, you know, I get to do this. Not I have to do this. I get to do this. And you really do have to tell yourself that sometimes, that that a lot of the stuff we go through that starts to feel mundane, that starts to feel predictable, that starts to feel boring, that starts to feel like the costs outweigh the benefits. Like the sermon or that it's more trouble than it's worth, a lot of times you have to step back and look at it and go, okay, let's, let's look at the big picture surroundings. Just kind of like that moment in, in the car of, of looking, you know, getting past the pain I was feeling, but looking at the landscape and thinking, okay, this is interesting. I've never seen this before. This particular situation will never, ever, ever happen to me again, or probably to anyone else. And stepping back and looking at it and thinking, okay, in the grand scheme of things, what I get to do today is a privilege. It's not just an obligation. It's really easy to be on the negative side of that razor's edge rather than on the positive. No, remember, um, you initially started off with the razor's edge being really the razor's edge between heaven and hell, being known by God or Christ saying, depart, I never knew you. And then you told us about your trip to Mexico and your little medical issues and, and how your buddy likes 70s music. And now I don't know where we're at. Almost 20 minutes, though. We're at 19 minutes, 30 seconds. And no word of God. Here's the thing. If God, we talked last time about how he's an infinite God. And so there has to be an almost infinite number of stories to reflect his glory. Uh huh. You have a Bible verse that says that. You notice what he said. God's an infinite God. Well, yes, the scriptures reveal this. So what's he going to extrapolate from? Well, because he's infinite. Therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to put out a branch off of this idea that is not taught in Scripture. Therefore, in order for God to be glorified, he has to be glorified in an infinite number of different stories uh, by all these infinite number of people. Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach this, and this is not an actual inference from the concept that God is infinite. And that your story is one of those. But if God is writing our story, if he's writing your story, and you don't know how the story ends... 
What kind of sense does it make to make judgments about how the plot is turning right now? As a writer, I I frequently have this sort of imaginary conversation between the characters, the the fictional characters that the writer is writing about. Okay, so now we're gonna we're gonna go from Mexico, your medical issues, your buddy who likes '70s music, to now how you can have you imagine because you write that you have fictional characters talk to each other, <sighs> and the author himself. It's like what what if those what if those characters could talk back? They would not like most of the story because you've noticed. That there is no such thing as a good story where everything goes smoothly all the way throughout and everything goes well. In fact, it's a better story. The, 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 the worse and the, most, the more hopeless it seems, the better the story is going to be when it ends up. The character has to go through stuff that really is, if they were talking back to the author, would be unreasonable and cruel. <laughs> kind of like the people in the audience at this church <laughs> what they're going through this isn't a sermon this is unusual and very cruel at this point in order to get to the place that makes it a good story in the end and God can see the end of that story and yet when we're going through it we're thinking this is not a pleasant journey Okay, so we're still teaching about me. Notice what he has in common with Osteen and Oprah here. Emphasis, or the emphasis, is on me and you. And I don't know how the story ends, Lord, but this is not going in the right direction. These plot twists are ridiculously cruel. And honestly, it's not fair. And yet, God who has already read the last chapter, I don't know that he's laughing at us because he's got a sympathetic heart, but he's also looking at stuff with a really positive attitude because he knows where it ends up. And that's the perspective, that's the razor's edge that we have to live with is, is, is it in the middle of the story when it doesn't look like things are going well that we're going to get caught up in or is it the end of the story, which we don't know yet, that we're going to focus on and say, this is going to be an exciting adventure. Sometimes this is the difference between faith and doubt too, because if you're like me and you fluctuate back and forth between these things pretty easily, you, you go through situations where God is calling you to have faith or you're believing for something or you're holding on to a promise or something like that. And some days your, your attitude or your perspective is he might do this, but it's really not looking like it. Probably not. And then other days your attitude is he's <laughs> I have no idea what he's talking about. Probably going to do this, but he might not. And there's this back and forth thing that really a lot of times depends on nothing more than the mood that you happen to have at the moment. It can depend on circumstances. It can depend on something you've heard or evidence that you've seen, but it usually doesn't depend on just naked rock solid faith in what God has said. But there's this perspective we can 
fluctuate between that's that's that views what he's doing negatively or views what he's doing positively, regardless of how things how things look. It's a razor's edge, but whichever whichever side we choose to live in makes an enormous difference. I have no idea what you're talking about. And how we're able to walk and step deeper into his plans for us. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. No idea what any of this means. Um, We're at 23 minutes, 51 seconds. No Bible. None whatsoever. So that's one of them. There's another razor's edge that goes back to that question of faith again. Um, Let me tell you a story first, and I'll tell you what the edge is. Um, Abraham and Sarah, um, and and I think I've mentioned this before too, but and you know this. You know how you would respond if a 90-something-year-old couple walked into church and if they stood up during visitor time and everybody came over to welcome them and said, oh, how you doing? Where you, you know, what church do you come from? And found out a little bit about their Christian walk and where they've been and all that kind of stuff. And somewhere in the conversation, you find out they're still holding out for that child that God promised them however many years ago. Pretty soon, there's going to be a pretty wide circle around this couple where nobody's venturing into because they're just not quite sure how to deal with that. Okay, now technically he hasn't read a biblical passage yet, but we have our first allusion to a somebody who's mentioned in the Bible, Abraham and Sarah. Notice what he's doing with this text, even though it's not a text, or at least how he's referencing the story. You and I's promises from God are just like their promise from God. He's reading the Bible as if it's basically, um, you know, a family album of people who've, well, they all have received promises from God, just like we're going to receive promises. And they're, yeah, we've got to be real careful here. Um, hmm. <laughs> There's a razor's edge between faith and delusion. And you usually can't tell which one it is until after the fact. If, if you've ever believed God for something outrageous, and I hope that you have, or I hope that you're doing that now. But if- now, <clears throat> let me pause here. The answer is yes. I am trusting God for something outrageous. And I would like to invite you to Trust God for this same outrageous thing. Are you ready? Here's what I'm trusting God for. And the reason I'm trusting God for it is because I have clear, unambiguous promises that I know are for me, even though my name is nowhere in the Bible, they're in Scripture. Are you ready? Here's the outrageous promise that I'm trusting God for. That me, I, a sinner, somebody who is who has grossly sinned against God and neighbor, everybody, okay, that I am forgiven and will spend eternity with Christ, that God himself declares me righteous because I have been given the gift of repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. My sins have been washed away. I am clothed and robed in the righteousness of Christ. 
That is the outrageous thing that I am trusting God for, that somebody as sinful and detestable and worthy of God's judgment like myself would be saved, pardoned, and forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross. So, yep, I'm trusting God for an outrageous promise. How about you? If you've ever believed him for something outrageous, you've probably gone through this internal discussion. Is this faith or am I nuts? (laughs) I see a lot of nodding heads. This is good. (laughs) I don't feel nearly so alone. Because you don't know, do you? I mean, you, you know, I mean, you tell yourself, no, faith is knowing. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Therefore, I can't admit that maybe I might possibly be deluded. But yet, at the same time, you know you might be, right? <laughs> and you go through this internal discussion where you try to convince yourself, yes, it's faith. And then every once in a while, a little voice says, no, you're not. It's not. And... Um, and, and hopefully you, you land and you learn to camp out on the faith side of things. And this is really the process of purifying your faith and maybe why it took Abraham 25 years or maybe not. I, there may... What are you trusting God for again? And where are these promises that you're trusting God for written in his word? You see what's going on here? The reason why all the self-talk about, well, maybe I'm crazy or maybe you're not, is because... The promises he's pointing to are not the promises written in God's word. These are promises that supposedly God has spoken directly into your heart. But you're not sure for sure if he really has. So you're reading the Bible to look at how the experience of other people went who trusted God when he promised things for them, you know, like Abraham and Sarah and other people. You see how he's missing the whole point? The Bible's not about you. And, you know, the chances if you think that God's spoken a promise into your heart, mm-hmm, yeah, no, go with the written ones. Let's trust God for those. As far as God's speaking into your heart, notice what's going on here. Your eyes are now taken off of Christ. Your eyes are taken off of your crucified and risen Savior. And the object of your faith is changed at this point. It's not Christ. It's some subjective promise. Big difference. May have been totally other reasons, but there is this process of purifying. What do you really believe where God leaves you with nothing but what he said? And you have to figure out, is it true or is it all an illusion? Yeah. How do you know you didn't have, you know, bad pizza the night before? Maybe you're suffering from like, you know, bacterially infected anchovies or something like that. Or maybe you have low blood sugar. Notice the subjectivity here. Subjectivity has you chasing your tail, chasing your own, well, mental health tail. How do I know I'm not crazy? Well, maybe you are. You see, why should you trust that little voice that you think was speaking into your heart? How do you know for sure that was God? How do you know it wasn't the devil or just your own delusions? See, go with the written word of God. You can trust that and it's sufficient. 
And we see this over and over and over again in Scripture, so much so that you can't say it's an isolated incident. And you can't, I mean, you, um, you have to conclude this is the way God deals with people. But- uh, oh, see, see, that's how you're reading the Bible. See, it's not about Christ. It's no longer the story of how God has brought us the Savior. No, we're looking to see how God has dealt with other people and say, oh, so that's the pattern, so I'm not crazy. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable as a result of it. He's completely clueless about what the Bible's about. And we're not looking to the real promises that are in Scripture. We're looking to a promise supposedly that God's spoken to our heart for some dream or some outrageous thing that we're supposed to be trusting him for. See, this is Joel Osteen's theology just being preached in a very boring kind of dry way. Uh, By the way, 26 minutes, 42 seconds, no Bible passage yet. Because it's in there so often. You see, Joseph, I'm my, my whole family is going to bow down to me. Yeah, I know I've been in prison for, I don't know how long and I've been slammed. Now this is the second old Testament story that he's referenced. He's made allusion to the story of Abraham and Sarah, never read single Bible verse. Now he's making reference to the story of Joseph and he's not reading a Bible verse. So far, he has not actually preached anything from the Bible. And I've been um, a slave and all that kind of stuff, and there's just absolutely no resolution in sight. But my family's going to bow down to me, and I'm going to be raised to a, to, to a high level of influence. There's a lot of years that that looks like delusion. You get over to the prophets, you find Ezekiel saying stuff that, Third reference to somebody in the Old Testament, he still hasn't preached a biblical text. 27 minutes, 13 seconds, no Bible. Again, you wouldn't want to sit next to Ezekiel on the bus. (laughs) You just wouldn't because it's... You would look at him and go, is it faith or delusion? And you'd be pretty sure it's not faith. And yet, in retrospect, we look back at him and go, oh, what a great man of faith. Well, not if he was sitting in here today, you wouldn't be saying that. We say that because history has proven that he was. Imagine a guy walking through the door and saying, you know, God told me to marry a prostitute. This is not faith. (laughs) And yet, with Hosea, it was. Because history proved that God had a message in there that was entirely accurate for his people. This is not how you read the scripture. And he's noticed he's not preaching it. He's just referencing these stories to somehow bolster, well, this is what God, it's God's spoken a dream into my heart. And I need to go look where other people got, where God spoke things into their lives and see how they lived it out. I'm just going to follow their example. He's somehow referencing them, but he's not teaching the biblical text, and the biblical text is about Jesus. It's not about you or some dream that God has put into your heart. This is narcissism just run amok. Noah looked like a lunatic until it started raining and didn't stop. There's this razor's edge that we walk all the time. If we're people of faith, there's a razor's edge that we walk where... We're living in a reality that only, really, only we can see. And everybody else will think it's lunacy. Or naivete. Or something that's well-intentioned but a little bit off. 
And how you learn to walk that razor's edge makes a huge difference in whether faith becomes sight or not. And I know really um, Bible passage that says, oh, yeah, sorry, you're you're not really interested in teaching the Bible, are you? No, God has a lot of grace for all those questions that we have and the struggling that we have. And I'm pretty sure even though scripture doesn't say it, that Joseph sat in prison for a long time saying, really, God, are you sure? And so did Moses on the backside of a desert for 40 years. And so did Abraham for 25 years waiting for a child. And then also when that child was supposed to be sacrificed to God. And so did the prophets when everybody rejected them except God himself. And so did Jesus hanging on a cross when it looked like entire ministry and all hopes of Messiah were about to go to the grave. And yet faith is proven by its fruit. So is delusion, by the way. (laughs) There were a lot of people who said they were the Messiah and history has proven that they weren't. There were a lot of people who believed that they were prophets or that God had promised them something, turned out that they, they weren't. They were false. And the reality of that is something that sticks in our mind and makes us go, which one of those am I, Lord? And it's a painful process, but it's an important one. Because there's something about learning to walk on that razor's edge that makes a difference for eternity in who you know God to be and what he's going to do in your life. There's another razor's edge between a sense of fulfillment and a sense of futility. Well, I'm not feeling feeling fulfilled by this non-biblical sermon, and it feels very futile to me. 30 minutes, 38 seconds, God's Word has not actually even been cracked open. Last time I was up here a few weeks ago, I told you about... Um, going to South Africa and being uh, taken on a tour of some of the cemeteries in Soweto and, and how one of great, another one of your traveling stories. I can hardly wait. Of them was burying 250 people every Saturday, most of them under the age of 30. I forgot to tell you the guy's name who led me on that little tour. He's a pastor and his first name is praise. His last name is Nkosi. I said, what does that mean? It means King. His name means praise the King. Isn't that awesome? We're walking around these devastating, hopeless situations, and he's just radiating joy the whole time. And I'm pretty sure if I were a pastor in that situation, I might get depressed every once in a while. And I might feel hopelessness. Because there's this razor's edge that we live on between looking at what God isn't doing on the one hand and looking at what he is doing on the other. And whichever one of those becomes our focus... Okay, I'm going to ask a disturbing question. Do you think this is the kind of preaching that will help people be able to stand on the last day and hear Jesus say, Welcome, beloved of my Father, enter into your rest, or depart from me, I never knew you. Do you think this preaching is really going to lead to somebody being brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. 
Because that's the thing. Repentant faith and trust in Christ is the only thing that will save you on the last day. The only thing. Determines to a large degree our perception of him, our outlook on life, and what we see manifesting in our life down the road. It's really easy to focus on what God isn't doing right now. And the reason that is, is because we usually don't see what he is doing until years down the road and we can look back on it. I'm pretty sure almost everybody in this room could come up with a story of going through a situation that was difficult or hard or confusing or whatever. And, but then, years later, being able to see God's hand in that situation and, and, and realizing that it, it wasn't random, it wasn't beyond his control, and in fact, he had a purpose in it. And I'm absolutely not saying that everything that happens to us is good. But I am saying that everything that happens to us is redeemable. And if we're able to live life focused on what God is doing rather than on what he isn't doing, then it makes an enormous difference in our well-being and how we're able to live. Bible verse, please. Come on. Where does God's word say this? You're saying these things on behalf of God and for our benefit as a Christian pastor who's supposed to be speaking the oracles of God found in his written word. And so far, you still have not actually opened the Bible at all. 32 minutes, 53 seconds, no Bible verse even quoted. I promise you I'm preaching to myself right now. Oh, that's great. Because this is... I don't know about for you, but this is one of the hardest things in the world to do. Because it's really easy to look around and say, Lord, why haven't you? Or why aren't you? And start asking those questions about what he isn't doing and for, to become totally preoccupied with that and miss what he is doing. Or even if you can't see that, just knowing that one day down the road, you'll be able to look back and see what that was. It's incredibly difficult to do that. And yet, isn't this the difference very often between faith and doubt? Isn't this what people in the Bible... Faith for what? Doubt in what? What are you talking about? Bible that we look back and go, what a great man of faith or great woman of faith. Isn't that what they were able to do? And if we realize, I mean, if we look at the situations that they went through and, and are honest with ourselves, we'd probably realize a lot of times we would not have had the same reaction that they had. We would have been focused on something other than what they were focused on. I don't know about you. If, if, if I'm a a teenage girl who's never been with a guy and an angel comes and says, you're about to get pregnant. Notice what he's doing here. The story, this is the story of the Virgin Mary. Okay. She has received the news from the angel Gabriel that she's going to give birth to the son of God. And all, well, Johnny can see in this is that, well, we can look at her example because similar things are going to happen in your life. 34 minutes, 14 seconds, no Bible passage read. Referenced stories, but he didn't actually teach any of them. And notice how every story in the Bible somehow is about you.
Oh, see, they give you an example so you can follow your faith journey the way they did too, because they received a promise from God. You you received a promise, and you got you don't want to be crazy and all that. This is a promise for you know for something big in your heart and all that kind of stuff. This is Joel Osteen's theology. This is Oprah's theology. You see who's missing? There was a reference to Jesus, but Jesus is just another example, just like Abraham and J- uh, Joseph and Mary that we got to follow. I'm starting to think of the stigma and the broken dreams and the fact that nobody, nobody is going to know that I'm telling the truth for at least three more decades and probably longer. And yet Mary's response was none of that. Have you read the Magnificat? I mean, serious. I got to throw in some Bible here. If you have your Bible, uh, open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, and let's see here. Luke chapter 1, all right? Luke chapter 1, and let's start at verse 26. We'll get a little bit of context here. I mean, if this guy's not going to actually preach the Bible, I mean, I might as well, right? Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. (laughs) Good stuff here. Already this is great stuff because Jesus is the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. Okay. Now all of a sudden all of the Old Testament prophecies are crackling and starting to come to life, right? The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, right? He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. The virgin and Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and is and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now in those days, Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, his, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Ah, good stuff. Nowhere in the text does it exactly say what this guy's saying. Yes, it was all of that. It was very difficult, but Joseph was determined to put her away. But the angel Gabriel intervened on her behalf. Right? But notice how he's reading the stories. He's got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Who was Luke writing about? Answer, Jesus. Who were the prophets writing about and foretelling? Answer, Jesus. Who did Moses tell us to look for and to listen to? The prophet who would arise and be like him. The one promised even by Moses was Jesus. The one who was the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent? Jesus. The scriptures are about him. But Johnny isn't preaching Jesus. He's preaching himself. And ultimately, he's teaching you to do the same. And my heart would start to, I mean, I, I, there would be this mixture because, number one, an angel came and told you, so, okay, well, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty safe to invest your heart in that and say, okay, this is what God is doing. At the same time, it's pretty easy to turn that around and look at, how am I going to do this? How am I going to live with that? How am I going to handle the fact that everybody, even my own family, is going to say, really? It's like, honey, just go ahead and admit it. I mean, isn't that what they would say? And it's really easy to get stuck there. And look at the hard side of things and look at what God hasn't been doing or what he isn't doing or, or even what he's doing but the difficult side of what he's doing and the price that's going to be paid for that. It would be really easy for the disciples to say, Lord, we want to follow you, but we don't really want it to cost quite that much and to get hung up on the cost. And there were times when some of them did, Right? There was a time when everybody left Jesus except for the 12 because it just got too weird. John 6, 66 of all places. It was this really difficult situation. Everybody left because it just got really weird except for the disciples who kind of said, where are we going to go? It was like, yeah, you're, we don't get this, but we got no other options. We've... <laughs> We've already come too far. So he's told us the verse number, John 6, verse 66, but he hasn't actually read it. So close. 36 minutes, 25 seconds, and he still has not yet read a biblical passage. It's a razor's edge. 
between fulfillment and futility. Or another way to look at it is between joy and despair. Sometime read the book of Philippians really carefully. You know, Philippians is one of the most joyful books in the Bible, right? Yeah, joy. That, that's great and all. Are you too busy to actually read it to these people? is mentioned through it throughout rejoicing, the word rejoicing. All these happy words come up again and again and again. But don't read it for that. Sometime go through it looking for all the places where Paul had an opportunity to feel, feel a sense of futility and chose not to. Because he's in prison, for one thing. It looks like the end of his ministry. He likes running around the Mediterranean world telling people about Jesus, and now he's stuck. And he can't. And he could be really bothered by that and say, Lord, when did I get out of your will? When did I... The Apostle Paul apparently liked running around telling people about Jesus. How come Pastor Johnny doesn't like to do that? Because he's not telling us about Jesus, that's for sure. 37 minutes, 33 seconds, still not a single biblical text. I step out of it. And, And instead, he's saying... Okay, yeah, 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 and I know people are out there preaching the gospel out of wrong motives, but at least Jesus is being preached. And by the way, the whole Praetorium Guard is hearing about the gospels because of my imprisonment. And and he doesn't say this, but he could have. And plus, I'm writing a whole bunch of letters that are going to be in the New Testament later and, and impact people for thousands of years. And there's this excitement about where he is. There's also this prospect of death. I might live, I might die. Hmm, I'm not sure. What do I prefer? I don't know. Could go this way, could go this way. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's so much better. I think I'll live because of your prayers, but, you know, either way I win. He's got this sick visitor. Epaphroditus comes, brings him a gift from the from the church at Philippi while he's under house arrest in, in Rome. And Epaphroditus gets sick, and he's, like, using all of this nice language. Oh, the gift meant so much, and he's been such a blessing to me. By the way, I'm sending him home now, please. And you can tell that Paul's being really, really polite, but it's also been a real hardship to have this visitor come and get sick. And now Paul's taking care of the guy who's supposed to be taking care of him you got a dispute going on at church between two ladies who can't seem to stop arguing with each other. And Paul's telling them, listen, let this attitude be in yourselves that was in Christ. Just, just be humble toward each other and consider yourselves better than, each, better than each other. I mean, consider each other better than yourself. I went out, came across the wrong way. <laughs> Speaking of things Paul could have said but didn't. He, he wouldn't have messed that up if you had actually read it. You still haven't actually read for us a single biblical text. What is this? Um, (laughs) He gets to the end of the book. He says, don't be anxious for anything. You don't tell that to people who are already not being anxious for anything, right? So you know there's some level of anxiety going on at the church for some reason or another. There's all of these opportunities for Paul to feel like everything's going wrong. His ministry is in tatters, and he's got nothing left to offer because apparently God's not on his good side anymore and has confined him to a house in Rome where he can't really do anything but write stuff. And, oh, by the way, he might die. And yet there's nothing, nothing negative in this book. 
nothing. Great. Why don't you, you know, like open it and like read us the whole thing and then exegete it. That's your job. How do you measure the things that happen to you? I measure the stuff that happens to be happens to me. It, to me, it's good or bad based on whether it fit my agenda or not. Was it going? And in, now we're back to preaching about him. Going in the direction I wanted to go in, okay, it's good. If it, is it deviating from the direction I wanted to go in? Okay, that's bad. That's good and bad to me. Or is it maybe better to measure what happens to us by God's agenda for us? Was getting imprisoned in Rome Paul's agenda? No. I mean, he kind of knew it was coming, and he kind of accepted, accepted that. But was that his preference? No. Was it God's agenda for him? Apparently so. Therefore, I rejoice. Therefore, it's good. Looks bad, but it's good. I'm not saying bad stuff can't happen. I'm just saying bad stuff can't win, depending on your perspective. There's this razor's edge of, is this fulfillment or is this futility? And sometimes you go to bed at night and you don't know. Because they can really look, outwardly they can really look the same. But when you tap into whatever God's doing with that, they can look totally different. I'll give you one more razor's edge and then we'll close there. I've got about 10 of them and I'll save the rest for another time. But one more is this razor's edge between the weight of the glory that you carry and the negligence of the glory that you carry. You've been huh? given a glory by God. By I mean, what is he talking about? <sighs> by which you can show who he is to the world around you. And there are a lot of people in scripture who lost their opportunity to show the glory that God had given. I'll give you a few specifics. Eli and his sons been given the priesthood of this new nation that had come out of captivity. First Samuel tells the story of how Eli the priest, and he was a pretty good guy, but his sons were not. And, and they were treating the offerings that were sacred to God, they were treating them selfishly. Pay attention to how this story, that the way he tells it, ties into the first so-called razor's edge of this sermon, the ultimate question and casually and consuming them on themselves rather than making them a pleasing offering to God. People would bring offerings, heartfelt offerings, and they would seize upon the opportunity to feed themselves. You realize the glory that they could have carried. It's the same glory that Samuel eventually did carry because he was the one that God raised up to take their place. You think about Esau and his birthright. 
and him selling it to Jacob for what was it? A pot of stew? He was hungry. Stomach needed to be filled. Wanted Jacob to make him something. And yeah, by the way, I'll give you my birthright. Jacob became the father of a nation. Esau's nation, Edom, kind of got wiped off the map later on. We hear a lot in scripture about Jacob from then on. Not a whole lot about Esau. He was the firstborn. It was his glory to carry. He forfeited it. Or look at Saul, the king, first king of Israel. Look at the glory he could have carried. He could have been a David, but he wasn't, and therefore God raised up a David. Why? Because Saul was focused on his needs right, right then, here and now. You see a theme between those things? Everybody who forfeited their glory was focused on, here's what I need right now. This is my appetite. I got to satisfy my appetite. If the glory fits in around that, that's fine. But the main thing is to satisfy my appetite. And it makes me wonder, and it makes me look back over the course of my life and wonder how many eternal blessings in my life or anybody else's and in the church today, how many eternal blessings are sold for a momentary appetite? That's not to lay guilt on anybody who's struggling with temptations or addictions or anything like that, but you need to understand it's not just about you. Notice in his telling of the story, he omitted the important data regarding Jacob and Esau, is that this has to do with God's election. And God, before those, before Jacob or Esau had done anything, had elected Jacob, not Esau. And this is this plays out in the Genesis text itself. When Rebekah was pregnant with the twins, she went and can, you know, and asked of the Lord what was going on. And God said, at that point, that the younger would serve, uh, the older would serve the younger. God had elected Jacob. He didn't mention any of that. So far, Johnny hasn't actually taught a biblical text. Every time he references these stories, he's not interested in what these stories say. He's interested in how these stories can somehow be paralleled to talk about me and supposedly some dream or or word that God has placed into his heart and stuff like that. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable. What have you done with Jesus? You getting free. It's about you stepping into glory and being a vessel for it. God has given every person in here a glory to share, and it's sacred. And it's a razor's edge whether we live with that sense of sacredness or not and live with a sense of carelessness or squandering what we've been given. How many opportunities do you have to show the glory that God has given you? Probably more than any of us are aware of at any given moment. And my prayer is that that I and everybody in here would become alert to every opportunity to reflect who he is, to show his glory, to be who we were created to be in a way that reflects something of his nature and shows something of his face to the people around us. In the words of... The immortal words of the great theologian, Lady Gaga. (laughs) You're on the edge of glory, hanging on to a moment of truth. 
notice he hasn't actually quoted a, 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 any biblical text, but now he's quoted Lady Gaga. And what's the quote? You're on the edge of glory. See, this sermon is about you. This isn't about Christ. In fact, this is the theology that will cause people to hear on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. These people are using Jesus, well, for their own end, for you know, as a means to an end, and that's their own glory. They won't, they won't succeed, but that's what they're using Jesus in these stories for, because it's all about them. I'm pretty sure it's a different context. <laughs> but it's a true statement. Please edit out the rest of the song. But that itself is a true statement. <laughs> We're on the edge of glory. And every moment is a moment of truth. And how are you going to reflect that? It's a razor's edge of difference in your own mind. But in heaven, there's this wide gap between the two. And all of heaven watches to see what are we going to do with the glory that God has given? What are we going to do with the sacred moments that he's put in front of us? What are we going to do whenever we have an opportunity to satisfy an appetite or reflect who he is? What are we going to do with the gifts that he's given us? Are we going to treat them as though, well, it's up to me whether I want to deal with them or not. Are we going to treat them as something sacred that he says, this is how you can step into eternity and reflect something of my face to the world around you? In here, it's a razor's edge. In the kingdom, it's a really big deal. I think I'll close with that one. But I want to urge and encourage every one of us to be aware of the little internal decisions that we make and to choose which ones we're going to take wisely. If you've noticed, almost every one of those things is just is, is nothing more than a matter of perspective. And it seems like we don't choose our perceptions, that they just kind of happen, that we have our perspective, but we haven't really consciously chosen them. And yet, experience and scripture tell us again and again that we have the option to choose how we're going to see things. We can change our perceptions anytime we want. Do you realize that? It might be hard. You might have to overcome a lot. You might have to overcome your upbringing. You might even have to overcome some brain chemistry that's been established over the years. But you still can choose. You're not a victim of the perceptions that you have. Perspectives are not written in stone. That's why things look different. You know, physically, things like those mountains looked way out ahead. They looked really tiny driving in that car in Mexico until we got up to them and started winding around in them. Then they looked pretty big. David goes to the front lines one day and sees the same giant that the entire Israel army saw. And to him, it was like he was tiny compared to God. And to the rest of the army, he was huge compared to men. It's perspective. Same giant, different perspective. And you choose which one you're going to have. I want to encourage you. I remember several years ago, Cameron, you or I came 
came to the whole Daystar building, and, and I don't remember the rest of the message, but I remember one line from it. He said, decide hard. Choose hard. Make a hard and fast decision. Choose what you're going to see. Choose what you're going to believe. Because how you experience the kingdom and the glory that you step into depends on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Done. He never, the entire time, 50 minutes, 20 seconds, actually taught God's word. Every reference to a biblical passage was to somehow validate some kind of idea in his life. He exegeted his... We learned far more about Johnny than we did about Jesus. But he did tell us that the Apostle Paul liked to teach about Jesus. But Johnny doesn't. Because if Johnny really did like to teach about Jesus, he would do so. Don't you think? Johnny likes to preach about himself. And he makes every Bible story about himself. That's, well, narcissism. And coming back to the big question... What will keep you from hearing, depart from me, I never knew you? Only repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus makes it clear that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who call upon him for mercy and forgiveness. And trust in him and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. But see, this theology doesn't really call you to do that. It calls you to trust in a subjective word or vision or dream that God places on your heart, and then you read the Bible stories to encourage you as you're experiencing burps and hiccups and setbacks along the way to you having your dream fulfilled, you look to the Bible and see, oh yeah, those people, they got a, they had a dream from God too, and they experienced burps, hiccups, and setbacks, and so I can know that I'm not crazy, and I can continue to trust God for the dream that he's laid on my heart. It's a false gospel, false Jesus. It doesn't point us to Christ, and it doesn't bring you to your knees in sorrow and contrition for your sins, praying for God's mercy. No, it leaves you focused on yourself and yourself and more of yourself. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. I've maxed out my friends. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>